just asked me if I would um, uh, give you outlines. So what I'll do is I will email to Dan the PowerPoints for all the lectures, and that way you'll have everything that I've shown you on the, on the slides. If, if you want a handout of that, um, you'll just download it. And, and yeah, on the, the seminar section of the ECC website, the, okay. the video or audio, I'm not sure, whichever comes out best will be there from the seminars as well as the, the PowerPoints okay. for the week. Very and good. Sounds good. Yes, sir. I'm not a good, okay, I'm glad you're going to do that because now I won't take the name this many Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I should have thought that beforehand. All right. Well, um, let's look at a man called the poor man's Earl. Um, you know, when you think about today, um, tell me your name again. I'm, Dan. Dan. Dan just came up. We were talking um, a few minutes ago, and he mentioned uh, that uh, I guess it's the Christian Ministries in conjunction with his International Justice Mission or Ministry yeah. are having a, um, a gathering soon on the campus, I assume. Yeah, February. In February. Okay. Um, and the, the issue is the um, sexual slave trade industry, which is huge mm -hmm. in the world now. And... Um, when I moved to St. Louis, I realized pretty quickly that St. Louis is a kind of hub. It's a center for a lot of that. And so there are a lot of Christians, at least some Christians, beginning to get more involved in that kind of thing. You know, every era has its, has its issues, and some are incredibly dark like, like that. Um, some are um, more just having to do with poverty. And I was curious, and I'd love to know if you can... Help me understand this, but I was curious about Bloomington because I don't know much about Bloomington, so I went on a couple of websites just to read about the city, and and this is something that uh, I found. Um, residents with income below the poverty level in 2009, Bloomington 37.3 percent, the state 14.4, and the rest of these are same kinds of thing. But the very bottom one, residents among high school graduates not in families um, who are below the poverty line 50.7 percent, state 17.1. I don't have a, I have no idea why that's the case. Um, is that surprising to you, or did you? I saw some nodding your head like you. That's not a surprise to you. And the fact that college, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if that has a big uh, role. Oh, in this. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I assume, or I started to guess that that would be a big part of the problem here. Um, okay. Uh, do you think if they factored that out, that would then change that tremendously? I mean, would it bring it down to kind of more like in line with the state? Yes, yes, yes. I think in a lot of ways, yes. Okay, all right. Um, I think it's cool. I think there are also pockets in the community mm -hmm. that, I mean, that are very, very different from each other because okay. of the way the community is organized around the university. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. as an individual who's grown up here in Louisiana and also as someone who's involved in the school corporation, mm -hmm. um, the pockets around campus are more affluent, and the pockets on the far west side of town. Uh huh. Okay. So there are definite differences. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I wondered about that, and then this morning it dawned on me as I'm yeah. driving by the school, I'm thinking, yeah, I bet that has a lot to do with the fact that we've got so many uh, students who just don't have any income, so to speak. But nevertheless, yeah. we're all faced um, uh, with with the poor in our midst, and, and the question for all of us is, what what are we going to do about it? Um, and that is a question that. Actually, the the, the pre-produced lunch numbers are not getting yeah. more accurate. 
Can you all hear that? Looking at the free and reduced lunch populations across the district, across the community, and the number of Title I schools that we have, it would actually be more informative as to the real poverty numbers and where those are located. Could you make a general conclusion from what you know of that? Would you be able to? I don't know the percentages off the top of my head. I work at three elementary schools on the west side of town, and all three are Title I schools because the free and reduced lunch population is, it crosses a certain percentage threshold, and then the school becomes a Title I school. A Title I is federal funding for reading education. So because the population is this level of poor, or this percentage of the student population is from poor homes, they receive additional funding from the government for reading education. Okay. So, and like University Elementary is not a Title I school. Bedford Rogers are not Title I schools. Fairview, Grandview, Highland Park, Summit, they all are. I don't remember if Arlington is or not. I think they are as well. So that kind of gives you a little bit more of an idea. Good. Okay. Well, that's helpful to me to know just a little bit more about what's going on here. The big thing for us is that, you know, we all have, there are needs in every community, and St. Louis has got tremendous needs. We live in an odd place that's kind of on the border. Just to the north of us are some very, very well-to-do homes and families, and just, you know, blocks behind us are low-income folks. And so we're kind of right in the middle of all that. And there's a lot of, St. Louis is a very violent city. It can be a very violent city at times and has been one of the worst in the country at times. Every community has issues. And the issue for us as we think about that is to be aware of them and then to really care enough to do something about it. Now, we're all called to different things. And just because I might be called this way doesn't mean that you are. One of the things that we did when we got involved with Lincoln Village was to say very clearly to our folks, some of you will be called to this. Some of you will not because we know that God has called you to different kinds of things. So the big thing, though, for us is to recognize God's calling on all of his people to be involved with their communities. To really, you know, one of the things that came out of that book that I mentioned earlier on from the pastor in Arkansas was he had this wonderful statement that said something like this. If your church should shut its doors, the community should weep because of the loss of that church in the community. And that became a defining idea for me for many, many years. And I, you know, I think that if Southwood would shut down in Huntsville, I think people would weep because by God's wonderful kindness, we did get involved in the city and begin to love the city and want to serve the city. And people in the city government began to see that and knew that we had a real concern for the city. Again, we weren't going in telling the city what to do, but we were trying very desperately to help where we could. All right. One of the people I think that's worth considering as we try to sort out what is God calling us to do, how do we make a difference in our own communities, is Lord Shaftesbury. He 
as, as I've kind of hinted at a number of times already, um, historians have said that he did more to help the poor and the needy than anyone in all of history. Now, that's a huge statement to make, but you'll get a sense as, um, as we go through today that there's some real truth to that. And so I think in many ways he becomes a model. Um, and I want to go through as we begin some reasons why I think we should look to his life. <clears throat> Wilberforce is more known um, than Shaftesbury. In fact, anybody heard of Shaftesbury before? Okay, one, two, all right, oh, a handful of you, that's good. Uh, most people don't know Shaftesbury, <clears throat> and that's really sad. I, I came across him when I was in, uh, in Edinburgh, and I was asked to do a paper on him um, years ago, and I was just floored uh, by the work of this man on behalf of those um, in misery. You know, when you look at, uh, when you look biblically at the word mercy, uh, we, we typically think um, that mercy has to do with not getting what we deserve. And that's true. That is true. And, and we, or we think about forgiveness. And that's true. But the bigger overarching uh, definition of mercy, if you look at the Greek word, is that it is the relieving of people in misery. That's what mercy is. And, and that's what God's more broad vision is uh, when he came to this earth, was to relieve us in our misery. And he did so in all kinds of ways. Um, all right. Well, Shaftesbury is a fairly forgotten hero, as it were, but someone, I think, for a number of reasons, uh, we, should, um, we should consider. Now, in many ways, he was an unlikely reformer. And, and this is what gives me encouragement. When I look at a Wilberforce, I, think, I see a man who just has all kinds of talents and cheery personality and, and just incredibly gifted. I think, well, I may never be that guy. But then when I look at a Shaftesbury, and, and you realize he wasn't a great public speaker. He had a terrible temperament in the sense of he always wrestled with insecurities and periodic depression and those kind of things. So I, that kind of gives me some hope. But here's why um, he's, in many ways, was an unlikely reformer. Um, he was heir of a, a long line of landed gentry, but he had no natural affinity with the new exploding cities and the Industrial Revolution. Politician of high Tory or conservative persuasion, but he had a Whiggish liberal passion for reform, unpopular in his own circles. Uh, he was a man of deep and simple faith, and in spite of being dogged by um, profound insecurities and depression, became a confident and tireless spokesman for those that he championed. Now, um, in, uh, on his 25th birthday, it was kind of a time of stop-taking, and, and he's another one that wrote um, detailed diary. So we have his own journal, and we're able to read and kind of get behind the scenes and see. And one of the things that you find out about a man like this was that he wrestled with all kinds of personal demons, if you want to call it that. But the only people who knew, the only person who knew was his wife. I mean, he didn't share this kind of things broadly, but he wrote them down. And uh, so we know a fair amount about him. And, and on his 25th birthday, he was kind of taking stock. He, he noted that God had enabled him to kind of grow and, and overcome some of the defects in his life. But he went on to mention some others of his personality that had not been cured and uh, which he um, had a sense would remain with him for the rest of his life. Uh, he wrote uh, that he wished that a keen sensitivity uh, to anything like coldness or temporary indifference from his friends uh, were subdued, led him to frequent mistakes by the unreflecting quickness of his feelings. In other words, he, he had trouble if anybody... If he, uh, was slighted by a friend or, or anyone, or if he sensed that someone was slighting him in some way, it caused him all kinds of inner turmoil. He was a very, almost hypersensitive personality, very thin-skinned, you might put it in modern, uh, modern terminology. Um, second, um, he had a, 
uh, deep and enduring faith. And, you know, a couple of common criticisms of Christian faith today are these. It is privately engaging but publicly irrelevant. Now, that, that was especially true, say, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But, but it's still oftentimes true, especially when we just focus on becoming holy in our own lives and these kind of holy huddles that we often have where we're not engaging with folks around us who are not followers of Christ. Uh, the second thing that's common today, anyway, commonly said of Christianity is that if it takes the return of Christ seriously, then it becomes a kind of pie-in-the-sky when you die religion. You know, essentially, the idea of, again, we're just trying to get people saved and get them into heaven. Um, and uh, yet, with, with Shaftesbury, um, neither of these things could be said about him. He was... Uh, very privately engaging in the sense of he was very committed to personal devotions, family devotions, to uh, walking with other uh, believers, but he was also very publicly relevant. And he saw, like Wilberforce before him, he saw that his, call, that his calling was to be in the public sphere. And so he, he was very engaged in the issues of his day. Also, interestingly enough, he took the return of Christ very, very seriously. In fact, later on, near... Um, at the end of his age, or end of his day, when he was about to die, he wrote that there's hardly been a half hour of my life I haven't thought something about the, the return of Christ. He loved to look forward to the return of Christ. And that then um, was one of the things that not only moved him to make a difference in the world, but gave him strength when he was being criticized, which he was a lot, because he did a lot of things that cost him dearly. Um, third, uh, Shaftesbury's resounding achievements came from his tackling the task at hand uh, then the next and the next. Wilberforce, from a very early age, had that mission statement, you know, two big purposes that God has set before me. He knew that was his calling. Shaftesbury never had that sense. Shaftesbury just did the next thing. Uh, essentially, he just, when he saw someone in need, he tried to help. And he did the next thing and the next thing and the next thing until eventually um, he lived a life like that and, and helped millions um, um, uh, by just responding to one crisis after another. Um, this is uh, one of the quotes that I, I really um, like. But fourth, let me go here. Fourth, uh, Shaftesbury demonstrated the face-to-face, hands-on quality of Victorian caring at its best. We tend to look at the Victorian era because of the way it's been written about as this kind of self-righteous, um, uncaring era. And that's not all true. There's a little bit of truth to that, but a lot of... The, the best of the Victorian era kind of grew out of a lot of Wilberforce's efforts uh, and now Shaftesbury, but the, the best kind of caring was this hands-on, face-to-face kind of a quality. Or, or quality. And Dickens, um, ever quick to, to note a new trend, said this. Uh, he, he made fun of the telescopic philanthropy of a Mrs. Jelby who didn't notice the ragged urchin under her feet because she could see nothing nearer than Africa. And what, what Dickens is kind of poking fun of is this kind of um, sense of I'm going to give to those people I don't know, I can't see, and I'm going to, I'm going to avoid anything around me. The, the rich were largely um, insulated from the poor and the misery that uh, was all around them in the Industrial Revolution, which is the time that we're looking at again. And uh, that's why um, with both Wilberforce and with Shaftesbury, one of the things that they did that was most important was just showing everyone the miserable conditions of so many people that they couldn't see. And that, that was part of what made a, a difference just on a very practical level. All right, fifth, 
Uh, Shaftesbury saw his work as a long-term, lifelong task. Uh, this is something we saw with uh, Wilberforce. It's something that is very much um, the same. Uh, there was one Republican leader who said not too long ago, um, kind of cr being critical of the political system in our country, he said five weeks is the span of many lawmakers on Capitol Hill today. And uh, um, that's true, of course. Um, what you see with Shaftesbury is essentially giving 50 years uh, of his life. The, you know, once he really became involved in Parliament, etc., he gave uh, the rest of his life to um, making a difference in, in his world. It was not a kind of five weeks and that was it. It was long-term, um, lifelong task. Sixth, um, Shaftesbury's greatest victory was probably his victory over himself. He accomplished so much, and you'll get a hint of that as we go through today. But when you read his journals, you, you see here's a man who um, wrestled constantly with insecurity. He never felt like he was good enough to be doing what he was doing. He was a man who suffered with periodic depression, um, not constant, but periodic depression. And he just had all kinds of uh, insecurities, sensitivities. So his own life was... Um, you know, behind the scenes, nobody would have known that about him, but behind the scenes, he wrestled with all kinds of emotions that he didn't allow to detract from the task at hand. He continued to move forward. All right. Well, let's look at his, let's look at his life and some of the things that he accomplished during his life. Um, in 1816, uh, he's 15 years old, and he's walking down Harrow Hill. He went to uh, Harrow, which is a... Um, uh, a school that rivaled Eton at the time where aristocrats and statesmen sent their sons. Um, Churchill would later go there. Um, and Anthony Ashley Cooper, as he is a boy of 15, is alone. He's walking down the hill uh, from the school and uh, he sees something that forever defines his life. Um, he sees uh, a group of four or five drunken men who are carrying... Uh, kind of a rough coffin over their head. And it's, uh, it's obviously a, a pauper's coffin. You can tell by how it's been made. And it's obvious, too, that these four or five men don't even know the man they're carrying. There are no mourners. Nobody's around. And at one point, uh, these um, men who are drunk and are singing um, drop the casket, and the body just spills out. And this 15-year-old boy, boy is seeing all of this. And then the men just begin to cuss. And, and uh, that was, at that point... Um, well, uh, Shaftesbury said uh, something like, um, uh, well, I think I've got it for you. Yeah. Uh, this is the origin of my public career. It brought powerfully before me the scorn and neglect manifested towards the poor and the helpless. I was deeply affected, but for many years afterwards, I acted only on feeling and sentiment. As I advanced in life, all this grew up to a sense of duty, and I was convinced that God had called me to devote whatever advantages he might have bestowed upon me in the cause of the weak, the helpless, both man and beast, and those who had none to help them. So uh, this really becomes his life. And, and this, this sets him on a trajectory that um, will mean giving almost all of his life to um, really help those who were in need. Now, um, he will live to the age of 84. And in between his school days at Harrow and his death, these are some of the kinds of things that he got involved in. Uh, in the years between uh, this experience and his life, he introduced an astonishing array of personal and public initiatives on behalf of the poor and helpless, reforms concerning uh, lunacy, which we don't use that term today, but it was the term he would have used, and 
has to do with the fact that oftentimes mental illness in that day had something to do with the with the um, where the moon was and, and that kind of thing. Um, factory hours, child labor, child prostitution, working conditions of chimney sweeps, costermongers, which I'll talk about in a minute. Those are um, uh, fruit sellers, vendors who had these little carts, uh, this kind of everywhere, and they were always typically very, very, very poor, pushed around by the, the authorities. Miners, initiatives for ragged schools. Ragged schools were schools for children who would not have opportunity for school at all had it not been for these schools. Public sanitation, housing for the poor, anti-vivisection, return of the Jews to Palestine. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, he, he must have just worked constantly at trying to make a difference uh, in his community and in his world. Uh, one person put it this way, as I've said, uh, no man has ever, in fact, uh, done more to lessen the extent of human misery or to add to the sum of total, some total of human happiness. Um, all right. Well... Let me tell you about his growing up years, because this probably had a lot to do with why he was so hypersensitive to criticism, why he wrestled with depression. Part of it was his family line. Um, if you know anything about Winston Churchill, he used to call his depression the black dog, and he suffered terribly with depression. Well, um, Shaftesbury is in that family through his mother. And uh, um, the other thing that, that you need to understand about his parents, though, is that they were terrible parents. I mean, he grew up in a horrible situation. His father, uh, the Earl, bullied him and his younger brothers and sisters. His mother, the Duke of Marlborough, um, lived for high society, left her children to be looked after by, his, uh, by their servants. And uh, in his own diary at one point, he, he wrote this. Um, he poured out his feelings on his parents. What a dreadful woman our mother is, uh, he wrote in 1825. Her whole pleasure is in finding fault. The following year, he noted that his mother continued in her hardness away with her memory. She, she was, I mean, by all accounts, a dreadful person regarding parenting. Um, regarding his father, he went on to say some things as well. As to friendship and affection between him, uh, his father, and me, years of experience had uh, su sufficiently proved that outward civility and only civility is the utmost that can be looked for. His whole pleasure is in finding fault. He oftener uh, than, oh, I think... Um, I missed a word there. Oftener abuses is the word that I was looking for, than censures. He was a very abusive man. And in fact, um, he used to knock uh, Shaftesbury down. I mean, physically just hit him hard enough to knock him over. And when he sent him off to Harrow to go to school, he told uh, the master there to do the same. Uh, so this is the kind of parenting he had growing up. And you can see why. Um, again, he's kind of an unlikely reformer, a man that's going to wrestle with all kinds of personal issues as, as, as he goes on. All right, um, school was not much better. Uh, before he got to Harrow, the situation was kind of like this. He looked back on it with horror. Nothing could have surpassed it, he wrote, for filth, bullying, neglect, and hard treatment of every sort. In old age, he still shuddered at the thought of the place. It was bad, wicked, filthy, and the treatment was starvation and cruelty. I mean, very, just like Dickens describes in, in so many of his novels, it was, it was a brutal time and he never looked back on it um, with any fondness whatsoever. All right. Um, the one bright spot, though, is a housekeeper named Maria Miles, who was uh, a servant of his mother's, and her, her mother essentially dedicates this servant to um, Lord Ashley, as he was called. Um, and, and this was the one bright spot in his childhood. And if it had not been for her, there's no telling what kind of person he would have grown up to be. But she was... Um, 
had been influenced probably indirectly, uh, at least by Wesley and Whitfield, and so she was an evangelical Christian, very deeply devout Christian. And um, uh, it was said um, later on that she was the only adult ever to show him as a child any affection. Um, she also, though, would teach him about Christ. And uh, she would spend hours with him and uh, sitting, sitting him on her knee would share Christ with him, talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and talk about Jesus who is still living and who is our friend. And, and that kind of thing impacted um, Shaftesbury for the rest of his years. He would look back on her as, as a, um, well, as he put it this way, um, the best friend I ever had. And um, she died while he was 10 and away at school. And uh, at that point, um, he was never told where she was buried. Again, perhaps because of the cruelty of, of his parents. And he, he mourned grievously for her. He felt uh, really alone in the world. And despite the jeers of um, fellow students uh, there at the school, he turned to his Bible for refuge to the, the friend that she had told him about. So. Um, we, you know, we thank God for, for people like this because this is the person that really made such a difference uh, in, in his life. And she gave him, as the one thing that she had, I think she gave him a pocket watch that he wore the rest of his life. And, uh, and she, he would tell people when, he would, when they would ask about this watch, um, because it probably was an heirloom, um, he would say, it, it was given to me by the best friend that I ever had. All right. Um, as a result of this... Uh, legacy or, or this growing up, he had a kind of double legacy. One was this hypersensitivity and depression, which I've mentioned to you, and another was faith in God. And that, of course, became the most powerful of all his weapons in the battles that he would face. Now, as we move into um, then his life in Parliament, um, he's been called the shy champion, I think, with, uh, with good reason, uh, recognizing early on that um, because he, he um, quickly made his mark. Uh, at the age of 25 even, he said, politics seems to be my destination. But when he began his career in Parliament, he didn't have a sense of what his specific calling was to be there. I mean, he knew that he was supposed to be in Parliament, that was his role, he'd been groomed for it as a child, etc. But he didn't really know why he was there in any specific reason, what his life was to be about. But then a couple of things happened, as, you know, as, as God does, he brings things into our lives that affect us, and uh, one of which was uh, he was placed on a select committee um, on lunacy, um, and he saw this afterwards as a kind of providence of God, uh, because his study of uh, the dreadful conditions of the way the mentally ill were treated oftentimes uh, in these homes, his, his study kind of brought back all the compassion that he felt when he saw this coffin spill over as a boy at 15. And so that began to affect him, and he began to think, well, how is it then that uh, I might serve God while serving in Parliament? And uh, then another thing happened, and that was that a man came to him who had sought to introduce a bill to limit the labor of little children, and essentially to limit them to 10 hours a day uh, of working. Um, these are little children, I mean, 10 years old, who are working much more oftentimes than 10 hours in a day. And, and so a man came to Shaftesbury and said, would you reintroduce the bill? The bill had, the bill had failed the first time. And um, um, when this man came to Shaftesbury, he really described in detail the miserable conditions of the children working in, in all kinds of ways, uh, 
mines. Um, this particular uh, act was for people in the cotton mills who uh, worked in the north, just all kinds of hours and very, very difficult situations. And here, this is kind of a defining moment for, for Shaftesbury because he has, well, he didn't know really up until these kind of events began to happen what he was going to do, what his specific focus was. He had his sights set on becoming prime minister. And so he, he thought, I've got a grand career ahead of me. Well, when he begins to get involved with these kinds of things, he recognizes that that may be over. Uh, he realizes that the cost for him may be that I'm not going to be able to realize some of the things that I felt like I was going to do. Well, he reintroduces the 10 hours bill um, for the improvement of the condition of factory children. And uh, he said this as he reintroduces it, I assure you I will not give way a single moment on the question of the 10 hours. I will persevere in the cause I have adopted. I took up the measure as a matter of conscience, and as such, I am determined to carry it through. Again, you see the same kind of thing that you saw in Wilberforce, and that is this incredible determination to, to see it through no matter what the cost, and he, and he will do that. Um, if the House uh, do not adopt the bill, they must drive me from it, as I will not concede a single step. I must positively declare that as long as I have a seat in that House, as long as God gives me health and a sound mind, no efforts, no exertions shall be wanting on my part uh, to establish the success of this measure. If defeated in the present session, I will bring it forward in the next, and so on in every succeeding session until my success, until my success is complete. It took 15 years to get this passed. 15 years. Um, for something that you would think that everybody would be willing just automatically to, to pass. Um, all right. Well, he is going to then work, um, you know, Wilberforce's great thing was the slave trade. And what you see is Shaftesbury then get involved in what one person has called white slaves of all kinds. And uh, it begins with a royal commission in 1840. Um, Shaftesbury has become really engrossed in industrial reform, recognizing the misery of people working, oftentimes in the Industrial Revolution. And so uh, he persuades Parliament to set up a royal commission to study the conditions of child labor in the industries. He begins um, with the coal mines, um, with this commission. And you know, this is just kind of, you know, there's nothing like it that I know of um, in our society in, in the West today. But in the 19th century, in Western society, in Britain, uh, this is how, um, people working in the coal mines were described. Um, Half-naked girls under 10 were forced to work with naked men in the depths of the earth or to drag heavy loads. Uh, naked small boys were made to hack at seams of coal too narrow for grown men to dig hour after hour in oppressive heat, bad air, with no light but a candle, no chance to learn their letters, and no future except stunted growth. So again, just the kind of conditions that we, we wouldn't even imagine. And when, when Shaftesbury begins to describe these things to Parliament and to other gatherings, um, it had a tremendous impact on people because they had no idea. They just truly, the, the wealthy were just isolated from what was going on. And when they began to hear what was going on, it made a tremendous difference in their lives. But um, uh, one thing about Shaftesbury is uh, that he would go down into the mines. Now, Nobody did. Even the owners of the mines wouldn't go down into their own mines for the most part. And the elite never did. They just never did. But he would. Took a deep interest in what was going on there. 
Um, uh, Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx's colleague, wrote at the time, in the dark loneliness of the mines, men, women, and children work in great heat, and the majority of them take off most, if not all, of their clothes. You can imagine the consequences for yourself. There are more illegitimate children in the mining districts than anywhere else. It was, a, it was just a dreadful kind of thing that's going on here. Um, all right. Well, Shaftesbury is uh, then going to um, rise before a full house of commons, and uh, he later recorded that as I stood and just before I opened my mouth, the words of God came forcibly to mind, only be strong and of good courage. And then he went on to say, for 20 millions of money, uh, you have purchased the liberation of the Negroes, referring to the slave trade and money that was actually given to um, slave uh, owners, and etc. And it was a blessed deed. You may this night, by a cheap and harmless vote, invigorate the hearts of thousands of your country people, enable them to walk in newness of life, to enter on the enjoyment of their inherited freedom, and avail themselves, if they will accept them, the opportunities of virtue, of morality, and of religion. Um, so, two months later then, nine years after the abolition of uh, slavery uh, from the British Empire in 1833, <coughs> slavery of British women and children in the mines was ended as well. And um, largely due to Shaftesbury's efforts here to push uh, through this commission that was founded to make the issue aware, uh, make people aware of the issue. All right, he also then kind of um, begins to help in, in broad, general ways um, what uh, kind of grew up in this Industrial Revolution with a lot of poverty, and that was this underclass of illiterate, virtually pagan children um, forming. He would help uh, support these ragged schools. I mentioned them to you briefly, but ragged schools were simply schools for people who couldn't go to school. And they were started oftentimes by the churches. They, they founded these little simple, straightforward schools so the kids who had no chance um, to go to school would now get to go. He got behind that, supported that. Um, there was a London City Mission that had been formed uh, to evangelize the poor districts. He became its chief supporter and, and president. These kinds of things, though, here's what, here's what I've seen with people who get very involved with uh, ministry for uh, people who are in great misery. It takes its toll on your life. It, it, there's a cost to this. And um, um, you know, my friend Mark Stearns, who uh, really is the leader uh, at Lincoln Village, um, at the end of the day, he is so worn out that he will go home and essentially not talk to anybody but his wife until he goes back to work the next day. It's a, he is so exhausted at the end of the day by being involved with so... I mean, he's had to do horrendous things like walk in and find uh, a man who had committed suicide by shooting himself in the, in, in the head. And, and he said to do just everything imaginable that um, you shouldn't have to face. And he faces the misery, and it takes its toll on him. Um, and it takes its toll on Shaftesbury. Because, you know, being made in the image of God, being born again, um, we are compassionate people. And when we become aware of people in our midst who are suffering, we begin to take that suffering on ourselves. And, and you can't help but do that. Um, it was said uh, um, in his mid-40s, his face began to be lined with suffering. I mean, you could just see the suffering on his face. It was also said of him that he could hardly bear to pass a ragged child without wanting to stop and talk. He loved these children. 
um, and he enjoyed just stopping and, and being with them and finding out how how they were doing. Now, um, this is a, a picture of Shaftesbury at a, a ragged school. Um, he will uh, then. Um, it's said that at one point in his life he really moves from politician to philanthropist in the sense that his, his political ambitions really become secondary, his philanthropic uh, goals become primary, and he's going to do a number of things. One of the things that he becomes uh, involved with um, was uh, this, the public health movement. The sanitation um, problems were immense in the Industrial Revolution. And, uh, People like Wilberforce didn't get involved in those things because they saw that outside of the, the parameter of, of the church and Christians. Um, but uh, to Shaftesbury, everything um, was important. And, uh, and so he would get involved um, in helping uh, to clear slums and, and to fix sanitation. I mean, everything he thought to the Lord was important. Um, reaching the hearts of the poor, he would do a number of things there. began a society called the the uh, Church Pastoral Aid Society, um, helping to find and to fund ministers uh, for uh, the exploding urban growth. Um, now, what's going to happen, though, with him is that he's going to get really, really creative. And, and I'll just speak to this for a few minutes. But uh, Shaftesbury, like, um, like Wesley and like Whitfield, is going to do some things that will kind of shock polite society. I mean, many, many people will become uncomfortable with the things that he will do. Uh, for instance, um, one thing that, that is surprising to us that would shock society, but one of the things that he does is to kind of repeal the act of parliament against conventicles. Essentially, in this day, uh, you couldn't have a meeting of more than 20 people um, that was a, uh, a meeting of, a gathering of Christians unless it was approved by the local Anglican church. Now, you could have... Uh, Crowds gather, gather to watch a cockfight or this um, bare-fisted prize fight, but you couldn't have a religious service unless it was approved by the local uh, rector of the Anglican Church. Um, so Shaftesbury will get uh, will will get this removed or get this repealed so that they can begin holding uh, Sunday night services, and he's going to do this in a couple of ways. First of all, uh, he's going to start holding evening services in Exeter Hall. Uh, significant uh, building where um, um, on Sunday evenings they would have thousands of people gather, thousands of the poor, typically maybe not the poorest yet, but the, the poor, people who weren't going to church would gather and they would have um, uh, sometimes Anglican ministers coming in uh, to preach on Sunday nights. And uh, he ran into problems with this, though, with the local Anglican ministers. He didn't like other Anglican pastors or rectors coming into their area. It was kind of a territorial thing. So um, Shaftesbury, very um, brilliantly, very wisely, hands it over to the non-conforming um, Christians and, and essentially gives it to uh, uh, Haddon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, another very famous evangelical of, of this era, hands it over to him, and then he does something else which became even more provocative, and that was start evening services in theaters. Imagine that, a church in a, in a theater. Um, now, uh, but to kind of go beyond... Um, Maybe what we're thinking, these theaters on Sunday nights having these services, these were for the very poor, people who would not come to church. Um, these theaters oftentimes were in the worst parts of the town. And so one theater, especially called the Old Vic, which I, I know nothing about other than the name, was apparently um, notorious for its uh, kind of very immoral kind of presentations uh, that were being done in, in the theaters. 
But he would then, on Sunday nights, you know, kind of redeem that place, as it were. And hundreds and thousands of people would come in. And on one night it was said as many as, um, I think, 18,000 of the poorest of the poor in London were, were able to hear the gospel preached because he was, um, he was moving beyond the customs of the day and opening up theaters for children uh, to be children and, and adults to be able to go and hear the gospel proclaimed. Um, all right. Let me tell you just a little bit about his own um, his home life. Um, charity for him really did begin at home. The death of his father made Shaftesbury the master of a house in London and a considerable estate. Essentially, they owned the village. With the exception of the church lands, they owned all of the village. Um, and he immediately set about to make improvements. His father uh, was a very uh, mean and selfish landlord and got incredibly angry at uh, Shaftesbury at one point when Shaftesbury, at a banquet for landowners and farmers, uh, urged these uh, men to be kind to uh, their tenants and to their animals. Well, Shaftesbury's dad just was outrageous that he would do such a thing. Uh, but when, because he wouldn't live like that, he didn't care um, in any way for his tenants. Uh, when Shaftesbury becomes uh, this the earl, when he takes over at the death of his father, he begins to change all of that. He begins to um, treat the tenants and uh, laborers very generously, very fairly, began improvements to the cottages, he built schools for the tenants. I mean, he began to take care of them like we should take care of them. He had uh, Sunday night services of song uh, for his... Every Sunday night, he would gather his family, um, friends, uh, villagers, people living, his tenants, they would gather Sunday night. He would, they would have a time of singing. Um, and uh, he would read uh, the Bible, and, and uh, it would be a delightful time. Apparently, the only... Uh, only Ones excluded apparently were the dogs that they had, a number of collies, and, uh, but they, the, the collies were not excluded from his morning um, family devotional time, and apparently he would close the Bible at the end with, with a bang and all the dogs would bark. That's one way to end a, end a, a service. Um, beyond that, just kind of ordinary kindnesses. There, uh, he became um, a, a very celebrated leader, uh, recognized as someone who had given himself to... Um, to the cause of the those in, in misery, and and he really did just kind of as I said earlier, he just did the next thing, and so whenever he saw someone in misery, he sought to relieve their misery. One day he is going to um, be saluted um, by a military um, gathering, and uh, on on the way to uh, the site where he's going to be saluted, he sees an old villager. Uh, an old lady um, who is really having a difficult time walking. So he stops the carriage. Uh, he's, he's all dressed in his uniform. It's a very official gathering. And he places her uh, in his seat, in the seat of honor. And uh, he sits on this little box beside the man that's driving the carriage. And they uh, are saluted in this way. And, and all the villagers noted how this poor lady was in the seat of honor, just embarrassed to death. But Shaftesbury wouldn't have it any other way. That was just who he was. Now, he also, on his grounds, had a donkey named Coster. Now, that's after the Coster mongers that I mentioned earlier on. Uh, the Costers were street traders of fruits, um, other foods. They were very, very poor, oftentimes pushed around by, um, by the law. And uh, Shaftesbury, though, uh, after a mission had gotten started among the, the Costers, he volunteered to be involved and to be their president, to get involved with them and to help them. And, and the Costers were oftentimes... Um, Fairly rough people. They had they had these little carts with fruit, vegetables, etc. 
and they had a donkey that would pull the carts, um, and they didn't always treat their donkeys well. So uh, he got involved in very creative ways and uh, um, seeking to bring the gospel to these men uh, and women who were the costers. And he would establish these kind of contests for the best-treated donkey or the best-looking car just to kind of help them see that there's a different way to live than, than the way they've been living. Well, the costers fell in love with him. And at one annual meeting of the mission, um, Shaftesbury was chairing it. There were a thousand costers present. And uh, following some preliminaries, you hear uh, kind of a noise from the back. And then you see costers just bringing in this, uh, this uh, donkey with ribbons all over. And they present it to him. Now, um, Shaftesbury had a sense of humor. He was at the chair. He was chairing the meeting. And when they brought this donkey all the way up on the stage, he said, I gladly give up my chair for the donkey. And uh, he said then, um, he said, when I have passed away from this life, I desire to have no more said of me than that I have done my duty as the poor donkey has done his with patience and unmurmuring resignation. <laughs> As the donkey was then led down the steps, uh, Shaftesbury remarked, and I hope the reporters of the press will state that the donkey having vacated the chair, the place was taken by Lord Shaftesbury. So a man who you know, took things in stride, enjoyed, um, enjoyed the people that he was serving. Uh, one more thing um, that uh, he did was, um, well, let me just kind of go through a narrative. I think it's, it's, this will give you a sense of who he was. He had been involved in all kinds of um, missions, refuges for, for the poor children on the streets. There were lots and lots of homeless children at this stage. And uh, he recognized, though, that much more had to be done. Um, and so what he decides, uh, you'll, you'll see, uh, he feels like they've got to have some kind of training. So he, he gathers this meeting. He gives these tickets out to boys all over the street to come have a roast beef dinner. And they gather at night. And uh, when the meeting begins, he said, I'm going to ask you some questions, boys. I want you to tell the truth. We want only your good. In other words, we're here for your sake. Uh, you don't need to conceal anything. Uh, and then he said, let all those boys who have ever been in prison hold up their hands. About 20 or 30 hands shut up. There are about 150 uh, boys here, so about 20 or so. Um, let those who have been in prison twice hold up their hands. About 10. How many in prison? Three times? Five. And these are... 16 years old and younger, 10 years old. Um, and then he said, uh, is it the case that the greater part of you boys are running about town all day and sleeping where you can at night? They assented. How do you get your livelihood? Uh, answers came from all over the hall, holding horses, um, begging, cleaning boots, etc. And then he said, would you like to get out of your present line of life and into one of honest industry? And uh, there was a very loud and general yes uh, across the group. And then he said, supposing that there were in the Thames a big ship large enough to contain a thousand boys, would you like to be placed on board to be taught trades or trained for the Navy and merchant service? And shouts of yes in the forest of hands. Well, true to his word, he then arranged for two ships uh, to train these homeless boys a trade, to give them a trade. And, and what he's doing here is recognizing that just giving them food and giving them clothes isn't enough. They have to be trained to live. Uh, one of the things we found in um, Lincoln Village is, and you, and you saw a bit of this last night, is that um, we really have to focus on the children to a large degree. And, and they have to have just very simple life skills given to them. They don't have them. They weren't raised with life skills. And so um, what Shaftesbury was doing here was essentially giving them a way to live and to support themselves, to, to grow, to, to come out of their poverty 
And that has to be a part of, of what we do as we seek to make a difference in the community. All right. Um, finishing well. Uh, Shaftesbury uh, was involved in all kinds of things. He repeatedly protested the excesses of, the, of imperialism, did much for foreign missions. He is considered, uh, considered in Israel to be, uh, in effect, one of its founders uh, for his love for the Jews and a support of a Jewish homeland. He was a strong opponent of American slavery, helped Harriet Beecher Stowe on her British visit. Um, so his, his concerns were for his country, but much, much broader than that. And, and um, there are hundreds of pages you can read on his life. There's a new biography, or a relatively new biography, that's come out uh, that will describe a lot of this in, in great detail. But on his 80th birthday in 1881, uh, he was honored uh, by uh, the Lord Mayor of London with a lot of people who had gathered, and thousands of people who gathered, a lot of the people whom he had helped. And so you have costers there, uh, you have um, ragged school children, you have flower girls, etc. And one of the speakers um, at this gathering for his birthday said this, no one in any century had deserved such thanks as the noble Earl. The myriads of children uh, who from the tenderest age were kept standing for 16 hours a day in hot factories. Uh, the poor half-fed women who harnessed to, car to cars and coal mines uh, used to draw them along dark, uh, low dark passages. The gutter children of London and all great towns, the uncared for lunatic, the prisoner in the foreign dungeon, uh, the oppressed of every clime or climate owe him thanks for exemption from misery. And inasmuch as he did it to all these, he did it to the Savior whom he always loved so well. Um, Shaftesbury, though, um, still, here he is, he's 80 years old, and he still couldn't forget uh, that slums and destitution were prevalent still. When I feel old age creeping upon me, he wrote to a friend, I know that I must die soon. I hope it is not wrong to say it. I cannot bear to leave this world with all the misery in it. I mean, you see, his, he is so wrapped up with the people in need that he, he cannot bear even to leave them in that need without trying to fix it. Well, he dies in uh, October of 1885. He's 84 years old. It was customary for someone of his, uh, his prestige, his importance to be buried in Westminster Abbey, but he refused burial there. Um, First part of the funeral took place, though, there. Produced one of the most moving occasions of the 19th century. It was a pouring, wet, dark day. And uh, some 7,000 people stood in Parliament Square. Deputations, it was said, from 196 missions gathered. Um, rescue homes, schools, hospital, seated in the abbey with the great ones of the land. And uh, 1,000 unreserved seats were filled quickly. Shaftesbury's youngest son recorded um, this on that occasion. He said, when I saw the crowd that lined the streets as my father's body was born to the abbey, the halt, the blind, the maimed, the poor, and the naked standing bareheaded in their rags amidst a pelting rain, patiently enduring to show their love and reverence to their departed friend, I thought it the most heart-stirring sight my eyes had ever looked upon, and I could only feel how happy was the man to whom it had been given to be thus useful in his life and to be laid at last to his long sleep amidst the sob of a great nation's heart. What a great conclusion to a life. All right. Let's stop there and let's just dream a little bit. Why don't we just think? I mean, you know your community. I don't know your community. Um, Just, can we have just a time where um, 
you can say anything. And just you can think about anything, even if it may be impossible. I, I love that line in the uh, in the clip we saw earlier about Wilberforce. I guess it was Pitt who said, "We're too young to know that we can't accomplish the impossible." Um, what a great line. I wonder, um, as you look around at your own community and what God may be calling you to do, or maybe you don't know what that is yet, but what are some things? Well, let's just start here. What are some things that need to happen in this community? Yeah. I have something to stimulate, stimulate some thinking. Good. I, I've been dealing with a fellow I think was defrauded me. Okay. And I realized he had a lot of personal issues. Mm -hmm. And his family, I've driven by his house and I realized I see a very dysfunctional situation. Okay. Maybe I should respond to that rather than trying to harass him. Pray for him to pay up. Maybe I should just say, hey, how can I contribute? Wow. How can I help you? Wow. Wow, that's tremendous. Wow. Um, has it been in a kind of a business situation, or is it? Yeah. Anybody have any thoughts on that? That's a, that could be a wonderful way to really show show the gospel. Has it caused you? I'm sure it's caused you some heartache, as it would. Um, how long, when when did this happen? Uh, has it been a, a while or is it it's, fairly recent? It's, it's gone on for a month, seven months. Seven months, okay, so it's significant. All right. Well, any thoughts about that? I mean, that's where it becomes very personal. That's where the rubber meets the road, as we would say. And that's where it becomes costly. Uh, in one sense, it would be easy to say, I just need, I just want to get my money back. Um, what do you think? That'd be the right thing to do. Bob, I see you smiling, looking down, so I'm going to make you talk. <laughs> I, I just think it's admirable that he's thinking about that. Me too. And uh, if he actually um, presented uh, what he wanted to do to this individual, it could be one of the most transformative things that could happen to him. Because he's, you know, um, he's essentially saying, I'm giving you grace. Yeah. that you don't deserve, though he doesn't need to use those words. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It just makes me think that maybe um, in everybody's life there's got to be at least someone like that mm -hmm. at some level, maybe not to the extent that he's talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe every one of us has something like that yeah. um, in our life. Yeah. Maybe not seven months of uh, stealing money, but something like that. Yeah. Yeah, all of us have been wronged by somebody, and uh, sometimes in pretty expensive ways, pretty costly ways. All right, what else? As you look around at your community, whether it's something very personal like that or something in a broader way, what does this community need? I know you're very involved in college ministry. We are. Um, what does that look like? What, what uh, is going on with the college students here? Yeah, one of the things that we've talked about often is that the college students, and not just college students, but uh, grad students who are here and, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. have a sense of they're displaced, they're without a home, uh, mm -hmm. and so really trying to provide a sense of this is this can be a second home for you, yeah. uh, a place where you connect and uh, your relational needs are met as well as your spiritual needs. Mm -hmm. and so that's, I think, a... 
kind of a driving force behind you know the college ministry here and a lot of what's going on at the church. And how is it that um, how do you think about trying to help them feel at home? What does that look like for them? Yeah, I think it's starting to affect how we think about lots of I mean everything. I mean even the space out there that mm-hmm. was newly renovated was kind of to make this more of a welcoming okay. environment, not just cold, not sterile, but mm-hmm. where we can facilitate conversations and just uh, engagement with one another yeah. in that way. Certainly we want college students to be getting into the homes of ECC families, yeah. not just coming on a Sunday morning or a Sunday yeah. night and, and leaving. Is that happening then, to uh, some degree? To some degree. Uh, in the what we call C groups, you know, mm-hmm. they, they're college Bible studies, but they don't okay. just meet on campus or in a coffee house. Yeah. They meet and you know, families have opened up their doors and... Good. Yeah, it's wonderful. All right, what else? Yes. As we leave Iraq uh, and mm-hmm. look forward next year, getting everybody out of Afghanistan, we have tremendous numbers of military people coming back to the area. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. we, we send a lot to this area because they're training this and that. Okay. And, and helping those folks, their families find the resources they need. Mm-hmm. About 27% of them will face some serious difficulties. Okay. But pointing them towards the, uh, the resources that are available, pointing them towards higher education with the new GI Bill, okay. and, and being a spiritual support to those mm-hmm. folks and their families too, I think is a very important mission. Do you have a military background? Then, or you just happen to know about that? I, I work with families and, and, and military folks that have been okay. going through this. Okay, very good. What else? Is there anything that's really on your heart that you just you feel like God might be moving you to do something and you don't even know if you can do it. But. Yes, sir? There's lots of problems in a campus town. Mm. One of the difficulties is that if you try to correct them or improve them, you play into the negative stereotypes that the people have of you. Um, interesting. Uh-huh. So, for example, there's a huge amount of alcohol consumption. Sure. It's incredible. The only kind of sexual exploitation that is looked down upon in this community is pedophilia. Everything else is okay. How about um, There's just a lot of difficulties, but if you try to somehow address these, you know, then you're playing right into all the stereotypes of the narrow fundamentalists. Yeah. yeah. And oh, no. <laughs> no, boy. Yes. Yeah. Please, yeah. yes. So I, I teach at IU, and um, there, there was, there's an office of women's affairs that does education a lot related to um, sexual assault. And I was looking through their programming, and I was amazed because a number of the workshops that they, and they send this out to instructors because they offer to come into the, you know, to go one class, we will come in and run a workshop. And, um, I was looking through the workshops they offer in relation to sexual assault, and two things struck me. One, there's an entire workshop on, on sort of um, awareness that, that you participate in or contribute to sexual assault if you're aware of something that's going on and you don't step in. Mm. And um, the second one is a workshop devoted to um, sort of thinking through where and when undergraduates might want to say no, and actually, um, the word abstinence was not used, but um, there was some, a similar sort of phrasing mm-hmm. worked into the workshop. And I, I was amazed because it, it seemed to me like there was this, this growing awareness that um, students need to have 
the ability to refrain from sexual activity presented as a valid option. Mm-hmm. And this is very strongly worked into the language of the Office of Women's Affairs workshops that we will offer to undergraduates. Uh-huh. And I think there's, it, it's gone far enough that the conversation on campus is in this place where people are willing to entertain this as one option among many. Hmm. So you can't, sort of thinking about how to strategically do it. You, and I think that there are enough undergraduates that are frustrated and are hurt and are carrying around a lot of pain that, that if you present this to them as, as um, something they might want to try, they've tried everything else. Mm-hmm. So would you like to try not being sexually active mm-hmm. for a period of time? They're actually willing to buy into it in that way. So that's another place where I think if we, if we think very strategically about how we're pitching it, mm-hmm. there's a way that you can get them to see the value of restraint. Um, and, and if you initially present it as, you know, here's something else that rather than you need to, you know, you need to commit to not mm-hmm. being sexually active until you get married, but here's something you might want to try. They might actually experience the freedom of that option and be much more willing then to listen to a more extended argument for, mm-hmm. um, you know, the value of restraint yeah. and abstinence. So, um, I just, you're, you're, I, cause I absolutely agree, right? You open your mouth and you can just see the responses. <laughs> uh, the, the sort of judgment, the, the eye rolling, like, yeah, right. we've heard this before right. and we really don't care here anymore. Yeah. Um, but I think there are interesting ways in which the, the climate has gone so far to the extreme that people are open to something else. Mm. And I don't know how uh, churches or campus ministers can, can sort of encourage that, um, but it seems, you know, check out the Office of Women's Affairs Sexual Assault workshop online, the, the page online, you can see it all there. Oh, that's, that's helpful, thank you. Uh, any more thoughts? Is it David? Is that right? Yeah. Any more thoughts to um, Dave's concern? Because it is a very legitimate concern. And we have to be so wise about how we present these kinds of things. Or otherwise, they can be over before we ever get started. Is it right? any, any thoughts about, about that? Anything else? Have you, um, have you seen something there that you've actually tried or you know some things have been tried that have not gone well? Is that what you're speaking No, in, in the class I taught for quite a while, I used to start out with an alcohol consumption questionnaire. Okay. And we use that for data analysis throughout the semester. Uh, interesting. But the level of drinking is just unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. It is. I think part of it is being ready to minister to students who are understanding the impact that has now had on their life. Uh, I've talked to dozens of students who've done that for two years and they don't want to do it anymore. They've been hurt by it. They've been in situations that they've been abused because they were drunk, all these things. And to be able to minister to them at that point is, I think, key to part to a full you know, addressing of the issue. But maybe something that we forget and we just want to go in and change the, mm-hmm. you know, the behavior to start with. Sure. So we have to be able to do both. Yeah. All right. What else? If you could kind of wave a magic wand and change one thing about this community, what would it be? And it could be anything, true. But you could just have it done overnight, fixed. 
racism here. Huh. Um, it seems to be an underlying kind of thing, but okay. it's definitely there. And I know I don't like to think about that, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. from so many different directions, people are saying that's true of our community. Okay. And, um, what kind of racism do you have? To I, it's it's um, It's not like what we used to think of racism, where blacks were not allowed to, uh, you know, go mm -hmm. in and all. It's almost like it feels unspoken, mm -hmm. and there's uh, a division somehow with that community. And I, I don't know. I've been, I've become aware of that more. Okay. So there's, there's a kind of unspoken division between whites and blacks in the community. Then is mm -hmm. that correct? Um, I, it might be opportunities and that thing, a lack of opportunities. Okay. Okay. That seems to be what's often mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, um, I don't know. And I think it's more in the community rather than at the university you know, mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. I, I don't sense that. But we had a... Um, a murder here in town some years ago, and uh, this was this person was uh, from another country, hmm. but the person that came in to do the shooting and all uh, caused a huge outroar in the community, which was really wonderful with with the uh, the air or the uh, the mosque here ended up coming into, you know, our circle mm. here. Mm. It turned out to be a wonderful thing, but that was a little more international, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. problems. Okay. Someone was offended. Mm. I, don't, I don't know. I, I have become aware of that in yeah. this community, and I, I, did, I haven't always thought about it. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I oftentimes associate with the southeast where I'm from, mm -hmm. and it certainly has not gone away completely there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's better than it was, a lot better than it was when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I um, worked even in the 70s for a dry cleaner as a, as a high school student that had separate bathrooms for blacks and whites, and uh, mm -hmm. I've seen that kind of thing, but of course that's gone. Yeah, but nevertheless, um, there still is... I would imagine most every community there still is an underlying bit of tension mm -hmm. oftentimes. And sometimes now it's between uh, Latinos and whites. Yes. Um, that's a, a yeah. growing problem, I'm afraid, in our country. Um, yeah, okay. All right, anybody else? Just wave a magic wand and change one thing about this community. What would it be? Yeah. I'm relatively new to Bloomington. I've been here a couple years ago. One thing that struck me when I came here is there's outside of the university community, I think there's a sense that the best days are past. Oh, <laughs> like, I don't know if anybody else would identify that, but huh. there's yeah, there's a fair amount of poverty, rural poverty. Okay. Uh, industry that used to be here is gone, mm -hmm. uh, and I just I observe that, especially like when you get to the west side of town or mm -hmm. get mm -hmm. outside of the university bubble. Hmm. 
In one way, it hurts me as a Latino, but at the same time, I say, how the church, what the church can do sure. to help Latinos yeah. if the crime rate has increased because of them, that what are we doing? That's the question that I have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, pregnancy, um, problems with children, school dropping out of school, school because they don't have the skills. Mm. So it's very hard um, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. to see that reality and doing nothing. Mm-hmm. The so being here has been like, wow. You know, what you have share with us, I mean, it's like eye-opening and being, and being uh, more concerned about the religion. I, I don't know what I'm going to do or what I'm going to do, but it's thinking about it. So it, to me, I know the pastor here is a challenge. Yeah. It's a challenge with this, yeah. you know, to outside of the university. I think definitely. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. I think definitely, as a church, we feel the the town and gown pull too. You know, definitely as a church, we feel called to the university, sure. and yet we live in a town that's not all about the university. Uh, and uh, balancing those two two things is, is challenging. I know for me, it's some of the greatest the greatest window into the the rural poverty. Uh, I live just west of town, where it's more rural, than my kids. You know, and the friends that they make, and the stories that they're coming back with, and uh, so that's kind of we often treat that as you know our into ministry with with families is through baseball and through you know the different connections that we're making there. But it's really easy for me to ignore it if it weren't for my kids, you know, who are in school and in class with uh, people I miss. Did you want to say something too about? Um Someone who's grown up in Wilmington, um, and I, I had friends in lots of different churches in the community, um, and I, I worked with ESL, which is a second language student mm-hmm. system, so mm-hmm. I had that perspective on the community. It seems like the Latino community is largely neglected. Mm-hmm. The Latino community is largely neglected by our churches mm-hmm. and our other. Um, Social outreaches. We support a lot of um, non-denominational mm-hmm. ministries that are, that, you know, there's social ministries here in the community. Um, but most of them are focused on Caucasian mm-hmm. work. Okay. And there's not always the outreach to that. So it is a largely neglected. Okay. All right. Area. Well, yes, sir. Well, I don't live here in the community, though I work here quite a bit. Um, but what I'm wondering is something that goes beyond here, and I think it would be true where I live. I wonder how many local congregations are attempting to reach out, maybe duplicating, overlapping, uh, and because they have limited resources in, in the way of maybe finances and personnel, uh, just kind of feel overwhelmed like it's more than I can do. Mm-hmm. And that there might be a way that God would place upon the hearts of the pastors and the, let's say, elders, deacons, whoever, to, to be able to at least talk, to begin to try to think together. What are these major needs? 
How can we begin to pray right now and then to become intentionally focused and to set some priorities as we sense God leading us? And the little bit that this church could give and what that can give and what that can give, maybe there's, I use the term task force, but you know, a group, so that no one church is spending all their time trying to go here and there, but there's a team of people, and it would seem to me this is where we really see evangelicalism manifested. Mm -hmm. This is where we'd see the body of Christ. What's that? I'm sorry. There's a group here, like I used to be on the board 20 years ago, Monroe uh, County United Ministry. Okay. okay. And it was basically an outreach to the hill. If you Concentration, ghetto, okay. poverty. And uh, the minister that was most involved with that with the First Baptist Church, his comment was the church is ready to get together and do this, so the government's going to do it if she wants. Yeah, we do. I think in our, in our world, we do tend to look to the government to do uh, probably more yeah. than it's called to do. So, um, and I, you know, that's something we need to, to give thought to. But well, here's where let's let me leave it this way. Um, you know, when we see these kinds of things, and when I, when I read about these kind of men and women in, in the history of the church, I feel like it implicates me, and it, it really, I feel like I have to do something, and um, I can't just walk away and say, well, this is a nice history lesson, and great. And I would encourage you to um, dream with other people. And, you know, you can't fix that Latino problem yourself. You just cannot do it. But you have a heart for it. It's obvious. And uh, um, you need to gather some like-minded people around you and begin to dream. And then, and here's what I would suggest. Take a baby step first and just do something. And, um, and that can lead into all kinds of things. You'll be surprised at what one step forward uh, can eventually lead to, um, again, with Lincoln Village, we had no idea what it would become. We just wanted to help. And so we took a baby step of giving what they asked for, 10 little projectors. That was it. And, um, and the other thing is, you can't do it by yourself. You just cannot. Uh, you'll lose steam. You need, you need somebody walking with you uh, who will encourage you when things get rough and kind of help encourage you to think and dream about what might be done. Um, you know, the, I guess the last thing I would say is that we have been placed on this earth for the sake of the people around us, and uh, we cannot forget that. Um, Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And we're his disciples, and, um, which means we are to walk like he walked. We are to follow after the pattern of his own life. And that means it's going to cost us. It is costly. You know, it may cost you financially to do what you're talking about doing with this, with this man. Um, but you may, you may, and there's no telling what kind of a difference you can make in that man's life. Um, so, um, do something. But gather people around you to dream. And, and don't, don't be content with going home at night and watching a video or you know, the, the local show that you love every night. Do something else uh, on occasion. And really think about your community and begin to pray. 
that God would give you a heart of compassion for your community. Um, I'm sure you have that already to some degree, but that's something that grows in us as we see the need. And ask God to ask God to help you see it as He sees it. Um, that when, once you know, I talked about mercy earlier on. Mercy being this kind of broad idea of um, relieving people of their misery. It involves two things really: a heart of compassion, and then an action that follows that's moved by that heart. Both those things have to be together for true biblical mercy to be taking place. And ask God to give you that. Ask God to give you other people to walk with. And uh, to have, have fun. I mean, I, I sat up, I had a friend uh, in Huntsville where I lived for the last 10 years, and um, we would sit up late into the night dreaming about what we could do for the community. And some fun things came out of that. And uh, uh, one of which was uh, a gathering of um, people from the community to have a meal once a month to talk about the issues of our community. And these were people from all walks of life, and uh, only a few were Christians. We had a number of Jewish people gathering together with us. We had uh, New Age folk, atheists, scientists in our community. Our purpose to start this was to be able to speak about the everyday problems that we all face and bigger issues, but to project the gospel into it as we, as we debated back and forth in friendly conversation. We called it Pig Fest because we ate, we pigged out, and we just kind of had this wonderful, delightful conversation. Um, there are all kinds of things that you might do uh, in this community. But ask God to, to help you take a step forward. Let me pray for us. Oh, did you want to say something? Go ahead, please. Uh, I guess what you're saying is compassion, uh, demonstrating compassion, uh, eventually leads to expressing the needs of spiritual needs. Yes, it does. That's right. Yeah. yeah, sometimes, you know, when you look at, uh, what's that? Disseminating Christian. Yes, amen. You know, it's interesting, when you look at Christ and his um, relieving people of their misery, sometimes he would begin with forgiving their sins. Sometimes he would begin by relieving them of their blindness or their illness or something else. Uh, there wasn't a real pattern there. He just, he loved people well enough to fix what was wrong. And uh, at the end of the day, that's kind of what we're called to do. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, thank you for these men and women, and thank you that they would give up so much of their weekend for this. I pray that it has not been a waste of their time, and that you will use this to encourage uh, in their hearts a real desire to love those in their own sphere of influence. Father, help me um, not to walk away from looking at this uh, as well without um, being involved uh, in my own community and seeking to be a blessing to those that you have placed before me. Lord, give us eyes to see those uh, who do need um, you and who need uh, the common gifts that you give to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Honeycutt. appreciate you giving up your weekend to be with us as well. Uh, don't forget, uh, probably within a day or two, uh, the video and the slides will be out. There's a lot of great quotations uh, that I want to get my hands on, so I'm glad those will be up there. Um, the next seminary is scheduled for late January, early February, and we'll get more details out to you regarding that fairly soon. So thank you guys for being here, and again, let's thank Dr. Honeycutt for being here with us.